Uh, thanks for being with us today. As Matt shared with you about accountability in the 19, mid-1990s, uh, the men, a lot of you in here, got involved in a program called Promise Keepers. Where is that now? It's because you all broke your promises. It's like, that didn't last very long. <laughs> really? I mean, it, it was a huge deal in the church, and it was all about the men keeping their promises, and even those movies, you know, I forget what it was, the fire movie that came out and stuff like that, and uh, yeah, I'm a promise breaker. I, I will fail you. I'm just telling you that up front. Uh, I keep a, a promise to my my wife and my kids, and that's my, that's my prayer. Keep that promise. Keep that promise. Uh, but the rest of you, sorry about you. Uh, yeah, and so with that whole promise keepers thing was this accountability situation that we're going to keep the men accountable and we meet in these small groups and we ask them questions and we'll ask them, you know, five, six, seven questions and we're going to bust them if they answer the wrong question. Well, you just, it's like Matt was saying, you just lied about it, you know, you just, you just didn't tell the truth. And, and if you did, then you took your licks and probably didn't go the next week (laughs) that's just the way it worked it was just and so now now we get to this chapter 13 where Paul is coming across as you know you guys got to get your act together and this is an accountability situation but let me let me read it to you we're in 2nd Corinthians and we're going to finish it today I think there's only like 13 verses here and I'll get in a little bit of Acts as well to, to kind of transition to our next book. But uh, chapter 13, verse 1, it says, This is the third time that I'm coming to you. Remember that he's in Macedonia, and I'll show you that here in just a second. But he's in Macedonia, and he's writing this letter, which is actually like the fourth letter to the church at Corinth. We only have two of those letters. That would be First and Second Corinthians. And so now he's like, I'm going to come to you for the third time. If you remember back to Acts chapter 18, verses 1 through 11, which we did probably two years ago. It's been that long since we've done it. He actually came to Corinth and he started the church in Corinth. He started telling people about Jesus. He went to the, the tabernacle first and spoke to the Jews first, and then he came and spoke to the Gentiles. And they believed, and a church had begun in Corinth. And then they were doing all sorts of wild and crazy things. And so he had to end up writing these letters. That letter uh, was probably written, or the church was actually, the first visit happened in about 50 AD. That's when he came and he started. Then the second one, the second visit to Corinth, we look at 2 Corinthians chapter 2. That's the trip that he alludes to where it was this painful visit in 54 AD. Four years later, he came back to the church and he basically said, you guys really have a lot of issues, sexual immorality, food issues, 
listening to other false teachers, things like that. And he found out things just weren't going well. But then he says, he actually takes a quote from Deuteronomy. He says, every matter must be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. Now, that takes me back to promise keepers and sitting in a group with a bunch of guys and you begin to like have conversation about what's going on in your life. But what the context of this is, what the context of this is, is actually Deuteronomy 19.15. It's about the people being taught about life in the promised land. If you remember, the Jews were taken into captivity by the Egyptians and then they got free and they went to the promised land. They're stuck there for like 40 years and they're just trying to figure out how to do life. And so that verse out of Deuteronomy is really talking to them like if you're going to come up and bust somebody's chops, there's got to be two or three people that do it, not just one person. So now he's talking about busting people's chops. He says, I gave a warning when I was present the second time. And now I give a warning while I'm absent to those who sinned before and to all the rest. If I come again, I will not be lenient. Hmm. Paul is absolutely expressing the idea of accountability here. He's warning them that he's coming to deal with those who are still refusing to repent and are still sinning. It's almost one of those statements, you wait till your dad gets home. That's basically what he just said. I'm coming to kick your butt if you don't repent. I've used this approach many times over in my ministry. Seriously, I have. I, I'm obviously in a, a group of, of, of men, friend-wise, that teach the word, that are ministers of the gospel, that we've gone to seminary, we do ministry together, and I've literally said to them, hey, if you ever like step out on your wife, I guarantee I'll be at your front door and I'll bring pain to you. I mean, I, 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 that's, that's how you feel, right? That's, that's the flesh side of it. And you know what? It's happened many times. Obviously, you know the statistics about pastors and clergy and priests and everything else. It happens. We're, we may be ordained, but we're people. And people will act on their flesh. Happens. But wait. It says in verse 3, he says, he says, If I come again, I will not be lenient since you seek proof of Christ speaking in me. He's saying, you want to see Christ working in me? Okay, I'll show you. Now, Matt, this is where pastors can take this passage and they can really bust people over the heads with it, which obviously upsets you. Uh, I get it. But watch what he says. He says, he is not weak 
in dealing with you, but powerful among you. He's talking about Christ. For he was crucified in weakness, but he lives by the power of God. For we also are weak in him, but in dealing with you, we will live with him by God's power. If you read it in the context of the way Paul's talking, that's kind of scary. That God is just up there ready to pounce on you and just let you have it. Okay. So what does accountability look like when Paul actually comes to town? Because he does. And there's still people there that have not repented. Still wallowing in their sin. I I have to believe that it looks like everything Paul wrote in this letter to them. Like, why would he write all these things and then at the very end, change? He comes in weakness rather than strength. His strength is God's strength. I take you back to what Paul wrote when he actually comes to Corinth. He writes this letter to the church in Rome. In chapter 2, verse 4, he says this. Or do you despise the riches of his kindness, talking about God, the riches of his kindness, restraint, and patience, not recognizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance. Yeah, I have uh, brothers that have failed in their flesh. I have pastoral friends that have failed in their flesh. And I go to their door. At one point in my ministry, I went to the door to bust their chops. Now I go to their door. And I want to know, will they give me their ear? And I've learned they won't give me their ear if I come in condemnation. They'll give me their ear if I come in grace. So as much as I want to, my flesh just wants to, that's me, that's me, that's Paul. That's Paul, he's so passionate about them doing the right thing and just their behavior, your flesh just, I'm coming. But when he actually gets there, one, personally, I don't avoid the hard conversation of sin. It is what it is. You've, you've made this choice. But I, I've come here with good news. That Christ died once. And he died for all those bad choices you've made. And he's already forgiven you. And it's his kindness, his gentleness that brings repentance. Where does repentance come from? doesn't come from me. It comes from him. If I come with condemnation, they don't hear me. And I'm pretty sure this is what Paul's experiencing. 
verse 5, he says, test yourselves to see if you're in the faith. Examine yourselves. Or do yourselves, do you yourselves not recognize that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless you fail the test. Now, I am absolutely sure this is how Paul approached those who were struggling with walking by faith. What did he do? What did he do? He simply reminded them who they were in Christ. I mean, it's just right there. Test yourselves to see if you're in the faith. Are you in Jesus, Jesus in you? Examine yourselves, or do yourselves not recognize that Jesus Christ is in you? There's a holy living God inside of you. Do you not understand what you have? It's the good news. I'm absolutely convinced he reminded them of their identity in Christ. What does it mean Jesus is in you? What does it mean? That you're holy, that you've been made righteous, that you've been redeemed, that you're forgiven, that you're a child of God. I'll sit there and tell them that all day long. While my heart hurts. Verse 6, he says, And I hope you will recognize that we ourselves do not fail the test. He's saying he breaks promises. Sometimes he breaks promises. If, if he comes with this exact message, he, he's going to be different than all the others that are bringing condemnation. Then you can see that Christ is in us and that we're listening to him. Verse 7 says, But we pray to God that you do nothing wrong. Not that we may appear to pass the test, but that you may do what is right, even though we may appear to fail. Paul is going to walk by his flesh sometimes. I walk by my flesh sometimes. What does it mean to walk by? I do things selfishly. I do things in my own strength. I do things the way I want to do things. happens yet my desire my heart my identity everything about me says stop stop just let jesus let the spirit inside of you do these things for you it's so much easier it goes so much better and as i mature that happens more often my behavior begins to line up with my true identity in Jesus. And honestly, if I sit here every week for 14 years now and tell you the same thing every week, you realize we do that, right? That maybe your behavior begins to line up with your true identity. Maybe I don't have to sit here and point fingers and condemn and call you out. We just talk about identity. Lord, and it's not my responsibility to cause you to quit sinning. It's not my responsibility to, ki- to get you to quit listening to your flesh. It's not my response. It's his. There's no pressure on me. Verse 8. 
Verse 8 says, For we can't do anything against the truth, but only for the truth. We rejoice when we are weak and you are strong. We also pray that you become fully mature. Mature. You guys, that, that's the journey for all believers right there. That we become spiritually mature. It's taken me, I say it, 58 years to get to this spot. And I'm not there yet. I'm still not there. And I'm still learning. My dad is 88. He's still learning. I want to be like my dad. I still want to be learning when I'm 88. You see, it's natural for us to respond to the truth. We've been given, you've been given this ability to discern truth even when lies have been disguised as truth. You're like, my high school kids, they can identify when they hear something that doesn't match up with what we're teaching here in this community. They can see that. And as Matt was saying, you know, these pastors teach this chapter that it's about accountability and you have to be responsible for everybody around here and you go out and it sounds good. It's coming from the church. It's coming from the pulpit. But we've been given the ability to discern truth and to understand when it's not truth. As we mature in our spiritual growth, we're able to see things because the light of the Spirit that resides in us, he shows things to us on a daily basis. You see what Paul and his ministry does right here. At the same time, they're pointing out their flesh patterns. He's expressing truth to them and confirming the faith that they already have. That's literally what we do when we sit across the table from somebody. Yeah, I get that you made these bad choices, but let me just remind you what you've done faith-wise and who you are. We just keep reminding you who you really are. Verse 10, it says, This is why I'm writing these things while absent, so when I am there... I may not have to deal harshly with you in keeping with the authority the Lord gave me for building up and not for tearing down. Paul would much rather have them see this truth in this letter rather than have them to come and actually say it to their face. But sometimes you just have to say it to their face. I can say it to their face with a very loving and compassionate, kind heart. Finally, brothers and sisters, he's like, you are important to me. You're my brother, you're my sister. Brothers and sisters, rejoice. Become mature. Be encouraged. Be of the same mind. Be at peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. (laughs) You you realize this letter is the result of a dysfunctional church. But he's also encouraging them in their faith and maturity. That's what he's written this whole letter for. And then he says, greet one another with a holy kiss. He didn't have a pandemic going on then. 
all the saints send you greetings. That, you know, that's a normal Middle Eastern greeting in goodbye. They just naturally do that. In verse 13, it says, The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. The fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. That, that's just simply the byproduct of walking by the Spirit together as a community. You hear so much about this group of people obviously from you but you understanding your identity and the Holy Spirit's working through you builds this unity in this group which is amazing and he's only encouraging this church at Corinth to do the same we finish 2 Corinthians so now what happens well let me back up to what happens in Acts chapter 20. Remember, we're following this timeline. I take you there. It says, After the uproar was over, Paul sent for the disciples, encouraged them, and after saying farewell, departed to go to Macedonia. That's where he wrote the letters, the 2 Corinthians letter. Verse 2, it says, And when he had passed through those areas... Well, what are those areas? Okay, you've got your map up here. I'm going to point to that one over here because more people can see it. But obviously, this is modern-day Google Map. And I'll get up and show you. I don't have some laser pointer or anything like that. Meg's like, oh, no, here he comes. But here we go. I'm rolling. Roll right over here. Look, right here's Jerusalem. In 39 days, I'll be there, God willing, with some of you in this room, 21 of us leaving for Israel. So this is Israel. Obviously, there's Syria, uh, Egypt, you got over here, you got Spain, you've got France, you can tell Italy from right here, and you've got Greece. Now, let me, I'm going to focus in on this area right here. So here's the next map. This is the third missionary journey. He's from Antioch, Syria. Paul is, and that's where he started. So he's made his all the way, all the way up here. We've, we've literally gone through his first missionary journey, his second missionary journey. Now we're on his third journey, and he's up here in Macedonia. Uh, l- let me go back to that last map real quick. If you look, right here is North, it says North Macedonia, and then if you go up here on the east side of this uh, body of water, which the I forget, Adriatic Sea, uh, is this area that's very mountainous, and it's called Illyricum. We know that he went there as well. Now go back to the, the other map. So he's in Macedonia, and Corinth is right here. It's in Greece. Uh, what else do I need to show you today? Uh, Philippi is at the very top. Neapolis, and then Troas. We're going to get to Troas today, okay? (laughs) I'm like, I'm on a skateboard. All right. So watch this. Stay with me. And when he passed through those areas, he literally left Macedonia. He went all the way up to Illyricum because we know that when he writes Romans... 
he writes Romans chapter 15, verse 19. He says, I even made it all the way up there to Lyricum. So we know that he went up that far. And then it says, and he offered them many words of encouragement. And he came to Greece. He came to Corinth and stayed three months. So now he's written 2 Corinthians. And he said, I'm coming. And he came. This is 57 AD. The church was established 50 AD. He wrote, he wrote this next letter, 54 AD. And then he's written this letter and now he's there. He stayed at the house of Gaius Tidius Justus. Well, how do you know that? Because when he signed off the book, the letter of, to Rome, he said, I want to thank my host, who's there in Corinth, Gaius. So we know that he stayed there. He thanked Gaius for hosting him at the end of the letter. Now, uh, here in Corinth, he's there for three months, and Priscilla and Aquila are in Rome, back north, Rome, Italy. They're sending him information all the time. Here's what's happening in Rome. People are, foreigners are coming to Rome for business, exchange, and we're getting to share the gospel, and it's amazing. And then they're going out back to their home places, and it's almost like we're establishing missionaries, Priscilla and Aquila. So they say, Paul, can you write us a letter proclaiming this good news? Can you... Can you put all this in, in writing so that we can like copy it and we can send it out with them? They also explain the tension that's going on between the Jews and the Gentiles. And you're talking about meat eating. Uh, you're talking about keeping the holy days, things like that. All these things that Paul's been dealing with as he's traveled throughout whole Macedonia and every place else. So this is where... In Corinth, Paul pins the letter to Rome. We went through Romans last year. I took it out of order because I needed to start it at the beginning of the year and not go through it during the summer. So last year, you taught Romans beautifully. You taught it. So if you want to go back and listen to it, go back to January last year. It started with Dave Ultoff and... uh, Why'd you wince when I said that? Was that a scary time? You did a beautiful job. You kicked it off. So now literally Paul pins the letter to the church in Rome while he's in Corinth. Now let's continue on in Acts. It says, The Jews plotted against him when he was about to set sail for Syria. He wanted to go back. Remember I showed you Syria, Antioch. That's his hometown. He's ready to go back home. And so he decided to go back through Macedonia. He's not going to sail across the Mediterranean Sea, but he's going to backtrack where he just came from and go back up to Macedonia. He was accompanied by, look, I'm not going to read all these names because I'm just going to butcher them, but there's seven, seven strong men that came from all these different areas that you can read about, all these churches that he established, And they all came to Corinth with him and met them there. Why did they do that? Because they had been gathering this relief fund for Jerusalem, as he instructed them to do. And they all brought the money to Paul there in Corinth. 
Now he's like, I'm not going to go back to Jerusalem this way. I'm going to go back. And they go, well, we'll go with you. We want to go back to Jerusalem with you. So watch. These seven men plus Luke, plus Luke, who is the author of Acts. He's the one that actually scribed Acts. They brought the relief fund, and now they're wanting to accompany him to Jerusalem. And all men went up to Philippi and caught up with Luke. Watch verse 5. It says, These men went on ahead and waited for us in Troas. Remember, Troas was across the top. So those men went ahead, those seven men went ahead, and they waited for, it says, we. But we, Paul and Luke, because Luke's writing the letter, but we sailed away from Philippi after the festival of unleavened bread. In five days we reached them at Troas, where we spent seven days. It took them five days. I'm assuming because unfavorable winds that happened, it normally doesn't take that long to sail, but it took them five days. And so then they got to Troas, and they're there for a whole week. And then I'm going to close with this story right here. Dale, you'll appreciate this story. On the first day of the week, that would be Sunday, we assembled to break bread. So they gathered up on this third floor of what's called an an insula or what we know as an apartment. There's all sorts of torches lit for light because it's nighttime. You can imagine the torches. It's hot, smoky. It's just, there's no air conditioning. And all these people are gathered up there. You got the picture? Paul spoke to them. And since he was about to depart the next day, so this was the seventh day that he's there, he was about to depart the next day. He kept on talking until midnight. You guys would not let me do that. There were many lamps in the room upstairs where we were assembled, and a young man, he had to been 8 to 14 years old, named Eutychus, was sitting on a window, window sill, and sank into a deep sleep as Paul kept on talking. Now, as a pastor, as a preacher, as a teacher, I'm going to assume it was due to the smoke and the conditions of the room rather than Paul's preaching, but let's just blame it on the conditions rather than his preaching. It says, when he was overcome by sleep, he fell down from the third story and was picked up dead. He, he literally sitting in a window because it's stuffy, smoky. Paul's like going on and on and on, just keep telling them about their identity and falls asleep, falls out the window, falls dead. It says dead. He flatlined. But Paul went down, bent over him. Some of them even say that he threw himself upon the young man. Bent over him, embraced him and said, don't be alarmed because he's alive. And after going upstairs and breaking the bread... And eating. <laughs> the, kid, the kid literally 
fell out of a window, died. Paul came down, laid hands on him, prayed over him, get him up, and he goes back upstairs and starts eating. Feed the kid. Paul talked a long time until dawn. I'm sure he had a lot to talk about. Like, literally, if it started at nighttime, six, seven o'clock, he preached till midnight, this disturbance occurred. Oh, you think that was great? Let me tell you some more what Jesus has done. Let me tell you what Jesus has done in you. And so for six more hours, he tells them. It says, then he left. They brought the boy home alive and were greatly comforted. <laughs> so what do you think Paul talked about for so long? The same thing we talk about here every Sunday. You're holy, you're righteous, you're redeemed, you're loved, you're part of the body of Christ. You're a different person from the rest of the world. You're a new creation, you have a new heart, you think differently, you process differently, you're a good person. You're deeply loved. Yeah, he talked like that for like 12 hours. I'll talk about it every week because you need to hear it. Jesus, um, I trust your word. Thank you for Paul. It's the, the adventures of Paul. But I thank you that you are uh, a living God that you're just not sitting up there on high, but you've taken residence inside of us. And that we can live this adventure, that we mature in our faith, that we learn and we understand and we grow. Lord, teach us. Give us repentance. Give us faith. Give us all these things that you speak about. And I trust you with my friends. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.